0: Welcome to The Waiting Room Revolution. On today's episode, we speak with Dr. Fumiko Chino from Memorial Sloan Kettering in New York City. She's a radiation oncologist focusing on breast and gynecologic cancers and a leading researcher on the topic of financial toxicity. We talk about her personal story with bankruptcy and healthcare, how you can avoid it, as well as topics like grief, art, and good communication in medicine. Hi, I'm Xian Xiao.
1: And I'm Sammy Winemaker. We talk to people who have information and tips on how to unlock a better illness
0: experience. The waiting room revolution starts right now. Welcome to the podcast, Fumiko.
1: Thank you for having me. It's, um, it's always exciting to meet new people um, virtually digitally. Um, And I actually the only silver lining of the pandemic is the fact that I feel like um, there's been enhanced communication um, across many channels.
0: Absolutely. I would love to start if you could talk about what is financial toxicity and why is this an important topic for patients and families.
1: Great question. I feel like financial toxicity is a very commonly used term, but it is often misused in that financial toxicity um, describes um, the problems that patients have related to their costs. Um, but it is a very patient facing problem. So um, we know that healthcare costs are rising. We know that essentially care is becoming unaffordable um, for governments, for healthcare systems, and also for patients, Um, but financial toxicity is really rooted in the patient. So it's the patient experience with costs and affordability, their objective um, toxicity, meaning unpaid bills, homelessness related to uh, costs, Um, and their subjective toxicities. So worry, anxiety, you know, the kind of the burden of um, all of these um, fears of the financial burden. Um, I'm specifically a cancer doctor. So, you know, uh, I focus on financial toxicity of cancer. Although I always say that financial toxicity sadly is not limited to cancer. There are many diseases um, that are unaffordable. And, um, you know, it's uh, sadly a problem that's kind of only getting worse uh, with time. Um, But financial toxicity, um, for me, really, I think is it, the term is very, thankfully understandable in that, you know, you would never start someone on a chemotherapy without warning them of potential side effects. They could lose their hair, you know, they could be uh, more susceptible for infection. Um, And financial toxicity is a toxicity just like any other in that some people will get more of it and some people will get less of it. Um, And so um, it really should be part of kind of patient-centered care to really talk about these issues.
0: And when doing some of the research, right, you this isn't just an academic, you know, topic to you. This is something personal, close to your heart. Why did you choose to sort of study this?
1: Right. Um, well, I would say I was never supposed to be a doctor. I just uh, here I am. Um, I actually have an art degree. so I have a fine arts degree in photography. I um, did uh, many years uh, working um, as an art director at, a, at a, you know, an entertainment company. I did nonprofit work, um, serving on boards of directions of you know, uh, directors of um, arts nonprofits. that was kind of my world was in the art world. Um, but um, my family is medical, um, so I had some knowledge of medicine, um, and that turned out to be very helpful uh, when my fiance was diagnosed with cancer when he was in his twenties, um, and we sort of rapidly fell down into a hole of cancer diagnosis, treatments, um, and toxicities. Um, you know, so in addition to losing sixty pounds and his hair. Um, Andrew also had, you know, financial toxicity. And and unfortunately, what I now know, um, and I see in my clinic every day, is that financial toxicity does not just affect the patient, it also affects the patient family. Um, And so I also suffered financial toxicity. Um, And during the course of his treatment, uh, we really just found out how little his health insurance um, paid for. and we were, you know, kind of forced to make some really difficult decisions. I think, you know, it could have really drastically, um, you know, altered our life, um, you know. Um, but, you know, after he died from cancer, um, which of course is the ultimate negative outcome of cancer, I then was faced with all of these financial bills, um, debt collectors you know, people harassing me over the phone and via letters, um, trying to get money from his medical dad. Um, and it was actually only a couple of years ago. So um, unfortunately, my husband died more than a decade ago. Um, but it was only a couple years ago where I, I realized that I actually didn't wasn't responsible for that debt. Um, and that's sort of the dirty secret about medical debt is that a lot of it actually, um, you're, you're threatened um, with it affecting you, um, but for the grieving uh, caregiver, spouse, family member, they actually off, are often not responsible for it. Um, and so I found out I was not responsible for it, but it really did hang over my head for a long time. That, you know, excruciating process of suffering financial toxicity um, left me, you know, emotionally devastated, financially devastated, um, but also charged with passion um, to try to fix the system. And so that's what kind of set me on the path to become a physician. And then, of course, um, to do the research that I do in financial toxicity. I will be honest, when I went to medical school, I was not planning on being an oncologist. I was far away from oncology as I possibly could. I was interested in geriatrics. I never wanted to see a young person with cancer, <laughs> um, but here I am, I guess, you, know, you can't fight city hall. I'm you know, at a cancer Institute. I do unfortunately have young patients that I treat um, and I am researching and trying to find solutions for financial toxicity.
0: I read somewhere that your mother was one of the first female radiation oncologists in Indiana. Did that have an influence on your eventual career path?
1: So my, so my mother um, went to medical school um, in the 60s and became a radiation oncologist in the 70s. Um, as you may or may not know, radiation oncology is an incredibly male-dominated field. Even now, it's only um, one-third female. Um, And in academic medicine, it's even less. Um, And so when she came into this, you know, very technical field, she was certainly an anomaly. Um, And um, I definitely was that kid raised by a doctor where you like, kind of don't see them that often, but you're incredibly proud of them. I mean, my mother worked so hard when I was a child and I'm the youngest of seven. So she had her hands full with being a mother, being a physician. And she also, you know, actually built significant, you know, she had a lot of practices. She was an incredible businesswoman. Um, so, um, you know, she was definitely a model for me, um, you know, and, you know, that, You know, my quality time with my mom when I was when I was a kid was actually going with her to work um, when she was on call or when she was treating on the weekends. And as again, the youngest of seven, that was like the only time I had like her alone (laughs) Uh, was she would be, you know, whatever signing charts and I would be in her office uh, with, you know, papers all around. Um, And that was our quality time um, together. when, when I went to medical school, um, just with the experience of my husband, again, I didn't think I was going to go into oncology. Um, and then eventually I kind of came around to the idea, oh, maybe I'll do a medical oncology um, because um, that's my main mentor is actually a medical oncologist. And um, I don't know, I just feel like you can't fight city hall. Like, you know, my mom is a radiation oncologist and I knew a lot more about radiation oncologists than even as a medical student than than what many of the attendings medical oncologists did, not because they were ignorant, but just because no one, you know, there's no education about radiation oncology in all of medicine, essentially, unless you actively pursue it, you are not gonna find it. Um, So I sort of generally like very gradually shifted my focus. um, And what you maybe don't know is that, my mom is a radiation oncologist and I'm a radiation oncologist, but also two of my siblings are radiation oncologists. So it's like a family business at this point. <laughs> um, so there was, it was, it was going to be very challenging for me to not go into this field.
0: <laughs> I see. There was destined. Uh-huh. A lot of our podcast is about illuminating the illness journey and getting people to be um, more aware, taking charge of their journey at the beginning. The middle, the later stage, and of course, the end of life stage and the idea that palliative care um, is not just about end of life, it can be throughout. And I'm wondering if this idea of financial toxicity is similar that it, you know, moves through all, you know, right from the beginning of a diagnosis, it isn't something that happens near the end when maybe perhaps, you know, more of the uh, experimental treatments are happening. It, am I right in saying that it's something that affects people for the entire journey?
1: I think you're absolutely right, and even you know the research that we do have is that cost burden on patients is really U-shaped, so it's um, you know highest at diagnosis and highest at end of life, and maybe it'll kind of even out in the middle. And our own research have found we've done sort of longitudinal studies on financial toxicity, is that um, there there is an opportunity all along the the you know the treatment path um, to potentially intervene about financial toxicity. Um, and it's not necessarily something where you know I meet someone in consult; they've just been diagnosed with cancer. Um, they may not have a problem with their bills at that point. Um, they may, but um, it, it can be something that evolves. Um, and certainly, our own data would suggest that maybe it'll come a year after a cancer diagnosis, or maybe two years. Um, There was actually a phenomenal um, research paper that was just published um, last week in JNCI specifically looking at the durable costs, um, uh, the durable economic burdens on patients and survivors a year out, two years out, four years out, 10 years out. Um, And there are still costs, even if you have survived your cancer, even if you're cancer free. Um, And so it's certainly, it's an ongoing concern for um, anyone who's been diagnosed with cancer, whether or not you're in the active treatment phase, you're in the survivor phase, or sadly, if you're in the end of life phase. Um, And I talk a pretty good talk in my life about value of our treatments and whether or not things are worth it. Um, But it really is so patient specific. I think, you know, um, each kind of value statement of, you know, whether or not you want to um, pursue aggressive cancer treatment, whether or not you want to, you know, be admitted to the hospital and be intubated at the end of life, each one should be really centered on goals of care for the individual um and i I don't think i can stress that enough with financial toxicity as well which is that there are some people that they just think it's worth it you know to bankrupt their family you know to get one more day of life right and and that's not inappropriate um, if they if that's a sacrifice they're willing to make i always say that sort of the people who are the least informed about the value of things are the ones ultimately making the decision Um, so maybe our You know, our movement at Forward as Society is to try to make sure, just like any other medical decision-making process, that we're having truly shared decision-making. That we're making sure that people know um, what the true kind of risk, benefits, and alternatives um, to anything is.
0: Yeah, it's a lot about what we talk about too in our podcast. It's not we are not providing a a value judgment. We are just want people to have full information, honest, realistic hope. um, You know, open information so that they can make the best choices. themselves. And I didn't have a chance to say this earlier, but I'm very sorry to hear about your loss of your partner, Andrew, and very grateful that you're so open with your story today. You know, I'm curious to know throughout the process now, you know, you're a doctor, you know, a lot more today, but when you were in it, going through it, did you ever feel like you had the chance to get support from palliative care? Like, what did those words mean to you then?
1: Yeah, it's really interesting, you know, because Andrew was treated at really excellent cancer centers in the United States. He um, started his chemotherapy at the, um, um, there was sort of complexities about his diagnosis at all. At one point, we, <laughs> we needed a rapid answer. And I think like anyone facing a new cancer diagnosis, nothing was ever moving fast enough. Um, so at one point we did you know, sort of jump ship and move to a different healthcare system to get a a faster diagnosis. And of course, my privilege as someone who comes from a medical family allowed us to do that. Um, And so, you know, from where he started his chemotherapy, actually at Indiana University under the care of Dr. Einhorn, um, to back to MD Anderson in Houston, Texas, and then to the University of Michigan, um, where he unfortunately died while inpatient at the hospital. um, We had, you know, excellent oncological care. And I always try to emphasize, you know, when I share the story of financial toxicity and kind of the hardships that we faced, I I never want to point the fingers at the providers. I really do feel like they were doing the best that they could. And this concept of shared decision-making and even the idea of cost communications was just not there, you know, it didn't really, it was, it was barely on anyone's periphery vision. Um, But, you know, at, at, I do remember palliative care as a concept, um, as part of his treatment, but only from a business card. When I was looking back through the medical records, I said, "Oh, we did meet a palliative care doctor. I see that we I see that we have one." Um, I, I won't say that we didn't realize the devastating nature of his disease course because we certainly did. But I think the reality of the fact that your husband, because we were engaged when he um, was diagnosed but we got married pretty rapidly afterwards because i think if you're facing critical illness you want to be sure of just one thing um, so we wanted to be sure that we were together um, so we we got married after essentially um, it was right before his um, he had an excisional biopsy it was it was right th- before that Um, I remember uh, after the excisional biopsy, the nurses gave him like a little cake (laughs) because he was finally not NPO. And and there's this very odd picture of him with this huge bandage on his neck holding a cake. He's sort of drugged and I'm next to him like with a thumbs up. the concept of sort of like that this was a terminal illness, that this was kind of going to get him in the end, um, it really didn't hit me until I, I think far too late. I think he probably knew way more than I did, you know, way, way more in advance. Um, I remember um, at his last medical oncology appointment um, before he was hospitalized, which ended up being his terminal hospitalization, his um, oncologist gave us a packet about hospice and he was like, I want you to read this. Um, and I thought, this isn't good. Um, uh, and then I remember specifically in the hospital having this uh, DNR, DNI conversation like in a hospital hallway um, with the attending physician. And I think like my mom. Um, and I remember thinking, even then I was like, we should probably not be having this in a hallway. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, there should definitely be some sort of room that you could put people in to have these difficult conversations. <laughs> um, but I, 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 I knew um, that he was critically ill. Um, I think anyone that young, though, it's still a surprise when they actually die. It was, it's still devastating.
0: And Fumiko, how did that experience affect you? I mean, like, do you talk about this with your own patients? Do you actually use the words palliative care in your work? I mean, what do you say to your patients?
1: Yeah, it's difficult. It's really hard not to let your own personal experience sort of um, um, in, overly influence your conversations with individual patients because it really should. I mean, as you know, you you need to meet, meet patients where they are, um, and some people are capable and willing and wanting to have a very frank discussion about prognosis of what the best case scenario is and what the worst case scenario is. Um, Certainly for people with advanced diseases, um, I always say, you know, we're aiming for this, um, but we don't cure every person, um, you know, and I try to make that distinction of, you know, even if things aren't curable, they're still treatable. Although I'm becoming, I'm I'm kind of turning around on this um, recently when I've given it some more thought, because I think there is, you know, there's, there's such fundamental misunderstanding um, within, um, within any situation of of a critical illness of of serious illness, um, because hope is a blessing and a curse. And um, everyone is hoping and expecting and wanting to be that miracle. And the reason why we call it a miracle is that it happens so few and far between, um, and so, you know, it, it, it is, I, I think, you know, certainly being on the other side of the stethoscope has influenced um, my conversations with people. I really do just try to create more open spaces and to as much as possible also to involve the caregiver. And again, that's my bias from being a care- cancer caregiver um, to, to try to make sure that we're acknowledging everything that they're doing to help care for patients. Um, and for people who do not have a primary caregiver to make sure that we're rallying the resources around them to try to help um, with some of the heavy lifting of cancer treatment because it really is um, it's, it's it's a team sport. Um, <laughs> um, and um, you know, you really do um you need all cylinders firing um to get someone through treatment. Um and um and, and yeah, I think it, it's it's hard. It can be very hard for me personally um, when I do have patients who are young, who maybe have a young family, um, and that are facing serious illness. Um, because you can tell that they're devastated, and you can also tell that maybe they're not ready to have, you know, some of the more brutal conversations. Um, and and I have to be okay with that as well.
0: Yeah, we talk a lot about the whole, this whole revolution is about inviting people to the conversation and allow, like you said, allowing the space and not saying, you know, they're not ready, so let's just push it off, but inviting them is what is, are you? would you like to have a conversation? Are you thinking about this? When you're ready, you know, we can have that and letting them know there is information, maybe about survival statistics, but also what what the storyline is going to be and the big picture of the illness which is also very helpful. It's not only about the time, it's also about what to expect. It's interesting because you, we, a lot of the, you've talking about serious illness conversations or communication skill building. What are your thoughts about how we're doing in the field with talking about communication skills and serious illness?
1: I do think that there's this false dichotomy, um, particularly in the United States about kind of your money or your life. You know, it's, it's bankruptcy or death and, um, you know, unfortunately, what I found with my own personal experience is that sometimes it's both. Sometimes you're financially devastated, emotionally devastated, and also you still die. Um, and that is unfortunately the grim reality of, of some people's, you know, I hate the term cancer journey, but sometimes it's very apt. Um, and um, I think learning that skill set of trying to um, you know, ramp up the conversation of palliative care. Um, The idea that it's not, you know, you're on active treatment and then you're on palliative care. It's like a firm, you know, vertical line as opposed to, you know, it should be a diagonal, you know, at someone's diagnosis, you know, they should know the concept of palliative care. And then maybe as symptom burdens um, increase, you know, you have further and further conversations. Um, I think we're making progress in terms of conversation. I think that there's still not enough education about it. I think I was, you know, blessed in coming, I was not, I was not blessed to have my background, but um, the, that knowledge of being a caregiver and having kind of gone through this from the, from the sticky end of the lollipop um, helped me then later try to gobble up all of that information um, when I was in medical school um, and certainly now in practice. Um, so I think, you know, I I was the person who did the short rotation in palliative care, and then I did the long rotation in palliative care, and then I did the long rotation in anesthesia because I knew it had a lot of pain management in it, Um, so I actively sought out those things. Um, I think, you know, there are more and more ways that we're integrating um, having difficult conversations um, into medical education, both in school and in residency. Um, I think there are we're just barely scratching the surface in terms of trying to figure out how to work cost into that. Um, and I always say, you know, if you'd asked me, you know, when I was at the bedside of my husband who was dying in the hospital, um, would it be worth a million dollars for you to spend another five minutes with him? I would have said yes, because you don't make good decisions when you're, in, when you're actively grieving. <laughs> Um, and yet again, we're routinely asking people who are having incredible, in, who are in emotional crisis, to make million-dollar decisions about their loved ones, um, about intubation, about you know, uh, being on being on you know, like pressors, on um, on you know, ending up in the ICU uh, for in, indefinite periods of time, um, and. I think, you know, having more understanding of what that looks like and being able to accurately kind of relay best case scenario, worst case scenario to patients um, is, you know, is a skill set and it is teachable. Um, We just need to, you know, start. Um, So I think we're making progress in terms of cost conversations specifically. um, No one's trained to do that. And I think you have to have the will to do it. Um, but also the, the knowledge of the lack of knowledge, which is that I can have a cost conversation, but I can't tell you what they'll pay for something. (laughs) Um, So more of my cost conversations are like, I'm going to give you a medication. It's called Zofran. We give it out like Tic Tacs. Um, For some people it costs $5 and for other people it costs $80. If you're one of these lucky people where Zofran costs $80, please let me know because I can you know, there's eight other anti-emetic medications that I can prescribe for you that may be as effective. Zofran is my go-to, um, but that doesn't mean that it is worth $80. Um, and sometimes that's $80 for 12 pills. Um, so I try to, anytime I know you know these cost aware prescribing patterns, it's not, not so much like how much are you paying, but more like, if this is not affordable for you, please let me know um, because I can try to see if there's an alternative or if there's financial assistance. Um, so that just kind of normalizes the idea that, hey, like sometimes care is expensive and it sometimes is unexpectedly expensive. Um, and if it is a barrier to you, I would like to help fix the barrier.
0: You know, you talk about facing serious illness very openly, very honestly and delicately. But similar to our goals of inviting people to know the information you have, I wonder if you've ever felt like your open approach puts you at odds with your colleagues who perhaps aren't so open.
1: Yeah, that's a really excellent question. And I think um, in increasingly in my field, which is a weird field, no one really knows what we do in the basement. Radiation oncology is like a black box that you like send someone down to get zapped. And then like five weeks later, they come back and their skin's charred and you're like, what happened? Um, (laughs) um, So increasingly radiation oncology is really trying to fully integrate ourselves into the care team. And I'd like to think that we are, but I I still know that there's um, like, there's still this kind of redheaded stepchild um, aspect of, of radiation oncology. I feel like not enough. Um, physicians realize the benefit that we can give patients, even for people who have terminal illnesses. Our treatments can really help prolong um, their you know, progression-free survival. It can decrease pain. It can treat bleeding. Um, it's actually quite effective um, at many palliative purposes. Um, I think there's a lot of misconceptions about the toxicities that we do um, cause. Um, and um, there's actually um, there was this phenomenal research study that came out two years ago, actually by one of my colleagues, um, specifically about the role of radiation oncologists in palliative care. Um, and there were some really shocking statements from medical oncologists about how um, it's not our role to talk about end-of-life care. It's not our role to talk about hospice. It's not our role to talk about prognosis, and that they felt like th- they meaning the medical oncologists that were interviewed for the study, they were the primary caregiver for that patient and we were only consultants um, and that um, there was real potential conflict um, if if a radiation oncologist overstepped their role and said something about how, oh, well, you have incurable disease um, and um, this is a purely palliative treatment, which is honest and and right um, for, for if I'm treating someone palliatively um and it you know it really does speak to the idea that you know true cancer treatment and true treatment of any um, serious illness is should be multidisciplinary um you know you should have uh, you know many different um care care team um, providers uh, in active discussion and that's what i've tried to build here and i'm again i'm grateful and blessed and um and greatly advantaged for being at a you know a, a, a world leading cancer center that really does try to integrate um, everyone into care. So I talked I talk to social workers all the time. I talk to our patient financial services people. I certainly talk to I FaceTime with um, our medical oncologists like all the time. <laughs> um, and you know our surgeons. It, you know it really is you know it's a very open and communicative environment. Um, I literally just got this email. I, I don't know, it was the end of the day yesterday, so I got a little weepy, but it, it, you know, sometimes when you're in your office at 8 p.m., you're really questioning your life choices. Um, and um, I got this email that was like, from a medical oncologist that was like, thank you for going like the 100th mile for this person. Um, Cause I had, you know, walked her through, you know, I, I talked to the pathologist, I pulled the slides, I looked at it and this is why I changed my recommendation. Um, And she just, it was a short email, like, thank you for going the hundredth mile for this person. And I was like, oh, yay. It really is. It's communication though too. So, you know, I feel like we can't, I mean, as radiation oncologists always say, the odds are good, but the goods are odd. We cannot just be these strangers in the basement. Um, we need to be every single time. I, you know, I see someone new, I email, you know, the surgeon, the medical oncologist to say, Hey, I met this lovely person. This is the plan. This is when they're going to do their simulation. Um, and then when they finish treatment, I email them one again, Hey, you know, this is how this person did with this treatment. I'm going to see them in three months with a scan um, I, and, and questions, comments, let me know.
0: We have been learning a lot through COVID about this hidden epidemic of grief and how it has shone a spotlight on the importance of mental health more than ever. And so I'm curious if there's anything you've learned from your past experiences with debt and grief, and whether there's anything from your past that you use now in our COVID world, either for yourself or for your patients?
1: Uh, There's so many different analogies I've used for grief. I can't even, you know, it's all a mishmash. Um, But I will say that you never really um, move on after a huge loss. You move forward, um, but you don't move on. It's always with you. And I think sometimes grief um, of a loss can really manifest, you know, quite robustly in unexpected ways. I remember I was driving home one day and I heard the J-Lo song, I swear to God, my love don't cost a thing on the radio. And I don't know why, just, <laughs> I was just weeping, bawling in my car for this J-Lo song. Um, and I was just like, okay, that was a surprise that, that that's what did it for me on that day. Um, so I think grief really kind of ebbs and flows and something will just hit you sideways. Um, but you know, when I was you know struggling with what to do with my life um, after the spectacular derailment that happened right before I turned 30, um, you know, it's like you're treading water. You're treading water. You're trying not to you know um, you're trying not to dunk under. You eventually are losing energy if you just tread water because you're you know you eventually just have to pick a direction and swim. Um, And you hope that there's a shore that way, but it really is, it's like, you know, you're surrounded on all four directions um, by water, um, but you eventually just have to, you just have to decide, I'm going to move forward this way. Um, and so for me, that was medical school and, I, you know, thankfully, you know, again, blessing and a curse, like medical school is very rigid. Um, it's very, you know, uh, you know, you you are in first year, you're learning this, you take a test, you, you learn this, you take a test and then eventually you're step one and then you're applying for residency and then you're in residency and then you're, you know, <laughs> Uh, applying for faculty positions um, uh, and there is a forward motion um, always um, with kind of changing a career. Uh, I think I maybe took the easy way out by just deciding to do something new. I I think it can be really challenging for people that are trying to return back to their quote unquote normal life um, and realizing that their life is not normal anymore, nor are they. Um, and that's actually a conversation I have with my patients all the time, which is that ironically, when you finish active cancer treatments. Um, and you're quote unquote cured. Although I know we never use the word cure, cure and hope are like the four-letter words that we don't like in cancer care. Um, but when there's no evidence of cancer in their body, and they're you know they're trying to integrate back into their normal life, um, I always say you know it's hard. You know you think you should be happy. Your family doesn't understand. Wait, you're done. You went through chemo. You went through radiation, um, and it's like the all of the error kind of leaves it in your body, um, and that's like a type of grief to be you know even. for people who have curable disease to be, quote unquote, done. Um, Because the expectation is that, okay, back to normal life. And I think there's an analogy here that I'm going to get to very slowly um, with the pandemic, um, which is that we have all had a significant and durable trauma over the last year and a half of um, being isolated, of having fear um of for you know for for me for my life you know for for my patients um I've seen unfortunately you know our my patients die who quite frankly should not have died um and to you know to say okay well pandemic's over we're gonna get back to our normal life is is a fallacy as well I mean we have to kind of get out on the other side. We have to pick a direction and swim, but, uh, but it's not to say that, you know, there's not, you don't have, you, you still have scars <laughs> from, from, from your journey. You still have to kind of figure out what the, the new you is. I'm hopeful that we can take kind of the lessons learned about connectivity, about, you know, being able to zoom with our family to, um, you know, share knowledge online, there was so much incredible, you know, doctors from Italy were sharing information to doctors in China who were sharing, you know, information to nurses in New York. I mean, that part I will 100% keep. Um, Isolation and terror, I will, I will, I will leave behind. Um, um, but yeah, it's, you know, transitioning from active greeting, grieving to more sort of, <laughs> uh, under underground grieving. Um, it's, uh, it's a bumpy road.
0: Part of moving forward in any experience. It sounds like is remembering who you are and the things that you're passionate about and the things that bring you joy. And you mentioned before your love of art and how art can heal. Do you ever find yourself able to incorporate art somehow into your life or right, to balance the stress of your work?
1: to say that that radiation oncology is much more similar to art design than you would anticipate it ever would be um so when i make a radiation plan it's truly customized to the patient and it's to the patient in three dimensions so you know it's axial sagittal, coronal slices and i am actually making a three-dimensional radiation plan for them um so it truly is it's It's stunning how much like Photoshop it is (laughs) uh, whenever I actually make a radiation plan. Um, And then the actual kind of finished product of radiation It is like an art form. It can be truly beautiful because you're essentially looking at the inside of someone's body and we have these color maps that show the radiation doses and it's truly like beautiful and stunning. And I am always just so happy at MSK. We have a computer in every consult room and I'm always so excited and happy when people actually wanna look at their scans or if they wanna look at their radiation plan. offer it. Um, a lot of people do not want to, um, but uh, for people that do it, because I, I really do feel like a picture is worth a thousand words. And for someone who is, for example, worried about their heart um, and I'm treating um, left breast cancer, um, I can show them their plan and I can show them how elegantly the heart has been spared. Um, and I think it is, you know, it's very reassuring um, for them. I think for, for patients themselves, like there is, there's so much power in kind of thinking about, well, what is the creative outlet, um, for my, for my worry about this or for, you know, the, my expectations for the future. Um, and you know, there are so many different ways you can kind of put that out. You know, you can journal, there's actually a really, there's good evidence that journaling can help people going through cancer treatment. Um, you know, I have, um, people who have taken their um, immobilization devices uh, after radiation. So we make these masks, or we make sometimes for their pelvis, very rarely for their breast. Um, But we, you know, they have the mold that they were used for their treatment that then they can use um, to make something else from. They can make a piece of artwork for it. Or as I always joke to them, they could uh, set it on fire um, (laughs) if they want, um, or run it over with their car. so I think there, you know, for for me, the translation from my creative work, which was primarily digital, to my actual work as a radiation oncologist, is almost seamless. It's you know, I, it was not just a cell that I did during interviews uh, for residency. It was, it's actually true. I do feel like my skill set really translated. Um, and for, for patients, I feel like, um, you know, being able to show them radiation plants and kind of let them know, we have this incredible technology and this is how it's helping you. Um, that is also, I think, very can be very reassuring. Um, it's actually been made even somewhat nicer um, at, with telehealth is because I can actually share my screen and then walk them through, again, if they're interested and willing. Um, you know, their, their radiation treatment plan, and then they can see it. And also their daughter can see it, or, you know, like their, um, you know, their, their, their parents can see it. Um, And that's been kind of a a welcome addition to the, um, the armory with telehealth is that you can kind of broaden the reach of knowledge.
0: Fumiko, it has been such a great pleasure to talk with you. Is there anything that you wanted to talk about that I haven't asked yet?
1: I do want to circle back to something that you said earlier, which is how do we integrate, you know, costs, concerns, or discussions into goals of care discussions? Because that really is you would you would really you would anticipate and expect that actually palliative care physicians would be the ones who would be essentially the most skilled at that. Um, And there is a move within palliative care, or at least within my friends who are interested in palliative care to sort of pilot this idea that maybe in addition to kind of the family meeting goals of care discussion, um, that, you know, you start thinking about, okay, it's not just, you know, the side effects of this t- chemotherapy for pancreatic cancer, it's also the time burden or the time costs. And then it's also the cost of the medications and also, you know, the burden on, on family for, you know, whatever, um, to drive you, um, they're missing work. Um, and so it's not, it's very, it's a holistic idea of, it's not just, oh, is this, is whatever full Theranox worth it for pancreatic cancer because of, you know, an eight month overall survival benefit. Um, I'm not, I'm making that up. It it is something similar, but but it's also, uh, you know, This is how I want to spend my remaining days on Earth. This is my priorities. This is how I do not want to be a burden on my family. Um, And this is the kind of memory that I want to make, you know, you know, there was just JCOP just published something that was, you know, like uh, a day spent at the beach, a day spent in the hospital is a day spent not at the beach, you know, like this concept that uh, we are kind of robbing people's time at the end of their life with our treatments. Um, And, you know, within my own field, you know, the idea that someone would spend, you know, a month of someone's life for a palliative treatment that could be done in a single day, um, that seems just like a travesty, like literally like we're stealing people's time. Um, And I think that is a discussion that we need to increasingly have, which is it's not just the cost out of pocket, but it's also the opportunity cost, um, which is such a burden for some of our patients.
0: But, but it is true. There is a movement. And I think, I just think, you know, now that you say that, I mean, we, we, the whole point of talking about things openly is that you have full information so you can make the best choices. And as you trade off survival with treatment, with side effects, toxic, it's a beautiful, and financial toxicity is something you need to consider of what is the trade off you're willing to make for that, you know, for the potential benefit.
1: As part of research, I, you know, I've interviewed you know hundreds of people with cancer, um, and I often interview them with their family member in the room. And again, I completely understand this being a cancer caregiver. Um, but often, what a patient will say that they're willing to give up or sacrifice in order to afford their cancer care is completely overwritten by the family member who's in the room. So, you know, we had this one question that was, are you know, are you willing to um, sell your house in order to afford your care? Um, And we recorded the, you know, the (laughs) IRB approved to ask the patient this. But what was interesting to me being in in the person in the room is that, you know, for the people who said no, their family member, their wife, their husband, their child would always be like, yes, we are mom. We are willing to sell our house in order for you to afford your care. We are. Um, And so many people were like, we'll live in a car, mom. It's okay. Um, But the patient wasn't willing, which is really interesting um, because when you kind of roll that tape out to the end the people who are making those decisions in that midnight hour at 4 a.m. in the ICU is the family member. It is the person who's 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 desperate. And again, I've been that desperate person in the ICU at 4 a.m., so I also understand that.
0: Fumiko, to end the interview, is there any advice that you have for patients and families to have a better illness journey?
1: Oh, that is... I mean, talk to your family, you know, and, and and really have those conversations when you're feeling well, this is what I'm willing to put up with, this is not what I'm not willing to put up with, um, this is what my hopes are, this is what my fears are, um, and, you know, really have that conversation when you're feeling well, um, because that is, you know, essential to, to, you know, at some, this is the beauty of life is that it is terminal. Like if, if we did not die, life would be less precious. Um, So we all know we're going to go sometime. um, And we just hope that we're going to have, um, you know, the a peaceful transition as possible with as little trauma and as traumatizing as little to our family members. Um, And actually having those discussions now um, can be really just the the first step um, to to really thinking, okay, um, this is what I want for myself. This is what I want for the future.
0: Thank you so much for joining us.
1: (laughs) Happy to be here. Thanks for having me.
0: Thanks for listening. Please visit our website, WaitingRoomRevolution.com to listen to our first season about the seven keys and to learn more. The podcast is produced and edited by me and Kayla McMillan. Our theme music is Maypole by Ketza. Please rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast and help us get the word out.